Republicans are not held accountable for what government does and doesn't do, because that's one thing everybody knows about Republicans is they don't like government and they say it and they're explicit and and they sabotage it. Yeah. Government doesn't work. They get into office. They make sure government doesn't work. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Ross Morales Raquetto, the co-founder and co-executive director of Run for Something. Run for Something recruits and supports young, diverse, and progressive political leaders and has worked with over 100,000 potential candidates. Ross was an early guest on this show more than 800 episodes ago, so I wanted to catch up. We had a very good conversation about what it's taken to grow Run for Something from the startup it was back in 2017 to the much larger and more established player it is now, including what it takes to do a good job of managing a progressive enterprise in this time. Ross is thoughtful about the challenges. For the political entrepreneurs out there or those interested in how we look for political leaders, this is an episode you'll want to listen to. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Ross at Run for Something. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Ross, welcome back to the show. I don't know if you know this, but I'm over 800 episodes into this podcast and you were episode 12. Wow. So it has been a while. I did talk to Amanda, your co-founder back around episode 309 in 2019, but it's been a while since I've talked to run for something and I'm glad to get the chance after the 2022 midterms to hear from you. Cause when I talked to you, you were really a startup and things were just getting going. I read your website in preparation for this budget's gone up a lot there's lots of different projects the numbers of people that are getting recruited or getting helped by you has gone up each and every year as far as i can tell but we just went through a midterm catch me up a little bit on what's been happening at run for something since we talked since i talked to amanda and and so on yeah i mean i think we're probably a, a very different organization from the last time that we talked this election cycle alone, we endorsed about 690 candidates across almost every state. On election night, we had 490 candidates that were up for election. We're at about 230 wins, which for us means that we'll probably end up having our highest win rate ever from this election. So we're feeling really good. We've launched a bunch of new programs in the interim. We're doing some really deep, we did some really deep message work on school board races this cycle which we can talk more about. We went really deep 
on recruiting for local offices and especially for local election administrators. So these are the, the elected people who run our elections. And in about like 30-ish states, these people are elected or they're appointed by people who are elected. We played some role in helping recruit about 230 folks to be on the ballot this cycle. And then we really dug in in a handful of target areas that we thought were really critical for sort of just like the functioning of our democracy. There were about 32 candidates that were on the ballot in November. Of those, 20 of them won. 13 of them were running against folks who were avowed election deniers. And of the candidates we had running against election deniers, 10 of them won. So we're feeling really good about this election cycle. The sort of like general feeling that people have is like everyone's breathing a little bit of a sigh of relief uh, that like democracy lives to fight another day. But honestly, the work continues and the sort of like MAGA right is going to like regroup and like come back in 2023, probably with a more effective strategy than they did this cycle. And I suspect that uh, the head of the, that uh, MAGA right may run again from what I saw in an announcement recently. <laughs> I saw it. I tried not to engage with it. We're going to all be forced to engage with this a lot over the next couple of years. I've seen quotes and clips from Mike Pence interviews. I've seen clips from Ron DeSantis interviews. I'm not sure Trump's going to get a clean primary, and I'm happy to sit back and watch that whole thing play out and try to pay as little attention to it as possible because there's so much happening down the ballot, especially in 2023. I'm curious about how you're doing. Like, the, there's a certain toll that it takes to run a startup, build it into a functioning organization that's been growing every year. I mean, it's exciting, I think, in general. It's also an immersive experience from what I've talked to with other people and, and in my own attempts to do things like that. How are you? You know, I think the same thing that kept me going during the Trump years has kept me going the, you know, like in the sort of like years since, which is like the candidates are really incredible and inspiring. They're the sort of the thing that is motivating. I think running an organization's hard. I think running an organization in 2022 is hard. I didn't run organizations, you know, before 2016 or uh, like anything sort of like that wasn't a campaign. But based on previous conversations I've had with former executive directors, it seems like it's harder now than it's been in previous years. And that's OK. But yeah, it does. You're you're not wrong. I'm tired. It takes a toll. As an organization, we're really committed to making sure folks have work life balance. And I have to model that. And also like. You know, when a when a donor wants to talk on a Friday afternoon at five o'clock, I got to get on the phone. Or when somebody wants to have us do a TV appearance at ten o'clock on Friday, I got to do it. And so, yeah, I'm tired. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't tired. I'm taking most of next week off to do a little bit of recovering. And also, like my amazing co-founder Amanda just gave birth um, this week, and so uh, she's out for the next few months. So I'm also, I'm a single co-ED for the next three months. So, uh, you know, I think I've had a lot of conversations, you know, with my wife, Jess, and with the executive team of the organization. I think once Amanda's back, I probably also will take a little bit of additional time off to just like recover because like you said, it, it's a grind. 
How big is the organization in terms of staff these days? Depends on what day you ask at this point, because we're growing so quickly. Coming into this year, we were about 18-ish. I think right now we're at about 33. I think probably by the end of this year, we'll be closer to 40. I think probably by mid-next year, we'll be between 60 and 80, depending on sort of how our fundraising goes. You're catching us in a moment right now of like very fast growth. You said that you that it's hard to run an organization in 2022, sort of comparatively. Why? What do you think is harder now? Yeah, I think a thing that has happened over the last 10 years, definitely during my time in politics, is like staff feel more empowered than they have in previous generations of political operatives. I think a lot of it is really good. I think like people aren't accepting the same type of treatment that probably you and I had to go through. I've been on campaigns where I made like $500 a month and was like sleeping on the floor of the campaign office and people don't have to do that anymore. That's actually a good thing. I also think it's made executive directors, it's required executive directors to become more responsive to the needs of their staff. And I think there's like a give and take to it. And I think that like on the whole, it's good. I think overall it just makes being a leader more difficult than it has been in previous iterations. If if overall it's good, and I suspect that's true, what is not good? It requires, I think in um in the way that is it harder to even talk about? Because you have to be careful of the feelings of the staff in a way that maybe people weren't in the past? Yeah, I think that's probably true. I don't I don't know that that's a bad thing because I think a lot of executive directors and organizations in ones that I've even worked at were pretty careless in the way that they spoke to their staff. I think what it does is it adds extra layers of consideration to different types of sort of like HR practices, personnel decisions, et cetera. If you're really, this is just like from my own perspective, like, it, you know, other folks will do, you know, what they think is right. If we're really going to live our values as an organization, and one of our core values is being progressive and diverse, it means that we have to take diversity seriously at our organization. It means that we need to take what staff think seriously. It means we need to take our hiring really seriously it needs that means that like we need to make it like a core priority and anytime you start to do that work and anytime you really engage in that work in a really deep and meaningful way it means you're going to find things that are uncomfortable and difficult to deal with and you know I'm a white leader of a organization that's like core mission is to recruit and support young diverse progressive people and so I have my own blind spots I'm certainly not perfect. The organization is certainly not perfect. Some of that is probably a reflection of of me. In previous iterations of organizations, in most cases, folks didn't even care. A lot of leaders didn't even know enough to really care or really prioritize it. It's not to critique individual people. It's to say that like the work is difficult. It is time consuming and it can be emotionally draining and as an organization we've made an intentional decision to have that be at the center of what we do but the end result means that like that often like 
there are problems and when there are problems, they need to be addressed. Working through those challenges can be difficult, both for leadership and staff. So we're sort of entering a different era of like orgs and the way leadership tries to approach these issues. And the organizations who are really struggling are the ones who try to split the difference, which is like, they say they care, but they don't demonstrate that. Um, I think those are a lot of the places where you probably end up seeing a lot of problems. But again, like every leader and organization is going to handle all of this differently and needs to really think about how they're going to handle it from the lens of their own org values, like what's important to them. For us, we decided really early on that like both diversity as a value being at the center was important just like because it's the right thing to do. But also because like if we're going to really achieve our mission, we need to have a diverse staff that is reflective of the candidates that we're working with. And we need people's vision that just isn't mine and Amanda's. And those are difficult things to figure out and they're difficult things to work through. We're not doing it perfectly, but like we're definitely trying. Does it make things a little bit harder? Does it like make the days longer? Is it draining emotionally? Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you being willing to delve into that a little bit because I do think it's a common theme when I talk to other leaders, sometimes offline. And I've also found that in the for-profit world uh, that that there's similar efforts going on and similar challenges as the country is always under change and, and how you know you steer an enterprise, you're trying to do it in a more enlightened way. And I, you know, I hope people appreciate your kind of willingness to talk about it and willingness to try to to be great about it. Are you unionized? Have you had that impulse come to your your staff? Not that I'm aware of. To my knowledge, we haven't been approached yet. I imagine it'll happen at some point. We'll deal with it when it comes and we'll handle it through sort of the lens of our general values as an organization. Sure. Tell me a little bit about what has changed as you've now have to manage a staff, it sounds like, of over 40. My recollection is you kind of have to reinvent an enterprise as you gain every 10 or 15 people at, at a small size. And I suspect, again, as you pick up larger groups, what's different in, for you in, in a bigger organization in terms of communication and process and how you think about leadership? Yeah, and I'll preface this by saying we're in the process of figuring a bunch of this out right now. So it's always the case. You I, always yeah, don't, definitely don't have it totally figured out, and I'm sure we're going to make some mistakes along the way. And that's just it; just is what it is. 2018 was like a year where we really got to show the model could work at scale, but we made a lot of I, like I made personally, like our executive team, we made some management mistakes. We came out of the 2018 election cycle realizing that and also realizing we needed to start to try to reinvent ourselves and like really build the type of organizational culture that we wanted. We brought in a new head of ops. We really started to intentionally have conversations about what our org culture was going to look like and how our values as an organization were going to be reflected like throughout all of the different things that we did. And we really spent 2019 getting the organization to a place where we could scale, like where we had the kind of culture that we actually wanted that was intentional, 
where we had processes in place that were intentional. And if you had asked me in 2018, could we have like scaled to 40, 50, 60 people? I probably would have told you like, yeah, we have a lot of work to do before we're even ready to do that because of the work we did in 2019. And then we sort of built on top of in 2020 and 2021, we are in a position to do that right now, but you're right. The processes, the work styles that serve you at 18 to 20 don't serve you at 35 to 40 and don't serve you at 55 to 70. We're not quite there yet, but we're going to get to a point probably where like, I don't know everybody like all that well at the organization where I don't have like a ton of insight into what a lot of people are doing on a daily basis. That's okay. That's why we hire good managers and other leaders in the organization to oversee that. I think we're also going moving into a place now where, you know, the organization has largely been Amanda and I's vision over the last, you know, like five, six years. I think that's going to start to change like as we get bigger because we don't have as much time to focus on sort of like the day to day. And we really need to rely on the people that we're hiring as you grow and scale processes break. And you have to like be ready to have conversations about what broke, why it broke, how are we going to fix it? And then honestly, like not just how do we fix it, but how do we take a long-term and strategic perspective in fixing those things? One of the values of the organization is that like we try to be long-term and strategic. We are fine taking a short-term L if it means that like, we are not going to have to go back and like redo everything like in nine months. And I think when we were a young org, we made a lot of those types of mistakes. This individual situation requires this like individual solution right now. We'll deal, you know, that will be a future us problem. That still happens from time to time. But the thing that we're really trying to think about is like, okay, we have a problem. It needs to get solved. How do we solve it in the short term without just like completely screwing ourselves like a year down the road and then having to put in tons of staff time and effort into fixing that thing that we broke because we just needed to fix something in the short term? Those are the types of conversations we're having right now. I don't know a lot of organizations that like do that do a really good job of like communication across different departments. I think every organization that I know EDs at have that same challenge. It's always a challenge. It's a challenge in every organization. I worked in the for-profit space for a little while. That was a challenge in the for-profit space too. Things are going to break. I actually say this is a team all the time. We know that. We're growing really quickly. We're probably growing more quickly than than is ideal, but we need to scale up to get this work done in the next two years, and this is what it requires. But the goal isn't to be perfect, because we know that mistakes are going to happen. That's the way it's going to be in the in a growing organization. The questions we need to ask ourselves are what are the things that absolutely can't break? That like, if they do break, it's like catastrophic to the functioning of the organization. And what we really need to do is orient ourselves towards making sure those things continue to function almost at all cost, knowing that other things are going to break and that as an organization, as a team, as a culture, we need to come together and have grace with each other because like everybody's moving really quickly. 
People forget to have conversations. People don't realize they need to talk to this new person. We're dealing with all that stuff right now. And I think the key really is relationship building. It's actually really important for people to know each other. And the key is making sure that like we have a culture of excellence, but not perfection that like we're doing the best work that we possibly can do, but we don't expect that like mistakes aren't going to happen. And for what it's worth, you and I make mistakes. We all do. I, I, I don't know if you know Robert Fox, who used to be COO at MoveOn. I had him on the show recently. One of the things that he mentioned was the challenge of scaling on the left, scaling organizations. I think there's a wide agreement that the stakes are so high, we need everybody performing at a high level and scaling to have as much impact. And one of the things that's happened over the last while is there's a lot of new organizations that are trying to, like you are, responsibly grow to fill that gap that is crucial. Like you're in one candidate recruitment and some related things that really can make a difference. It's pretty obvious. And there's also been this, this observation that sometimes we get too internally focused on perfection, like exemplifying the highest ideals of progressivism internally, which could take energy away, if not done right, could take energy away from the goal, which is societal. Managing an organization with those things in mind is highly non-trivial. When you look out and you see the challenges that you're trying to tackle, how do you think about like how big you would like to be and how well you'd want to function in order to really, you know, quadruple your impact or multiply it by a large number? How do you think about like where you're trying to go? There was a lot in the question. So I'm way too go, much. Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to meander. I'm going to meander a little into seems uh, like a fair response. Yes. Into the, <laughs> into the answer. I think the first thing that really stuck out to me is that like, I actually think tension in organizations is good. Tension is really is actually really important. And if you don't have it, you actually don't end up getting the best quality of work out of people. There need to be competing sets of priorities. When competing sets of priorities exist, when it is managed well and effectively, people actually push each other and produce better work. Now, I think the problems come when like, and I think this happens a lot in progressive organizations. We just do a really shitty job of training managers. It is true. It has been true for a long time. We have gotten better at it over the years, but it is not nearly where it needs to be. And I think that's where good management comes in and making sure you do have good managers because that's that's how you manage the tension. And like, you know, in the org structure of run for something, tension is actually built into the structure intentionally because it pushes people. I also think you get tension between values and priorities, right? So like there's a certain number of hours in the day, people have a finite amount of like mental and emotional bandwidth that they can handle. So if like one specific thing is taking up too much of their bandwidth, then like it probably is happening to the detriment of something else. I think that if we really want to do the work that we say we do, we need to create organizations that are prioritizing being like good stewards of the movement, 
good stewards of like their staff and good stewards of the work itself. I think about it like a relationship, right? Like there are times where like in a relationship or marriage or partnership or whatever, one person's career might take precedent, right? And the other person will have to take a step back to like handle the other stuff. There will be times where both folks are grinding really hard and the relationship actually just like takes a backseat for a little while. There are always trade-offs happening. You're always navigating those tensions. And I think the the problems really arise when we're not aware of what's happening and when we're not intentional about the choices that we're making. That was like the first part of your question in terms of how you like manage the scale. It's really difficult because most of our organizations rely on donors. That's just like the way it is. And some organizations have some like earned revenue built into their models. Some like move on have built beautiful self-sustaining model that like allows them to not have to take a lot of like large donor money. Move on's also a really old organization, like in terms of sort of like how old progressive orgs are. Like they've had a lot of time to build that. I don't know what their budget is, but like I got to imagine they're spending at least a million dollars a year on acquisition, like for their email list, for their member list so that they can continue to raise grassroots money. That operation is huge, but keeps the organization sustained. We're a lot younger. We like have a solid grassroots base, but like we're not raising all of our money uh, off of like grassroots contributions. When your organization and your growth is at the discretion of donors, it is difficult to is difficult to manage the that type of growth because it's not predictable it can be predictable but because like it it, what is not predictable is like when folks are going to be like energized about the work you're doing and so maybe they're energized about the work you're doing at the right time i feel like as an organization we got some of it was intentional and some of it was luck that like we had a lot of time to build before we raised a lot more money and so we made a lot of mistakes but we did it at a much smaller scale And we were able to get a lot of those things, like sort of the kinks worked out before we started to grow like more significantly. Every year, sort of the donor climate resets. Most people did not expect that we were going to do this well, this cycle. Most orgs were preparing for a different donor environment because of how we all thought the results were going to go. I don't think anyone really knows what it means going into 2023 and 2024, to be totally honest. I certainly don't. I feel confident that we'll raise the money that we need to raise. I think the key for organizations that want to grow is that like it is important to do the prep work in advance and to be ready to take a moment when it comes because you have no idea when the moment's going to hit and you have no idea what hook is going to sort of be the right hook. For some of the larger organizations, it's easier to plan because like they have a donor base. They always give the Emily's list of the world have done a really incredible job of like cultivating like a group of people who donate to them that are like Emily's list donors. And like, that was a decision they made a long time ago. It was really smart. It's kept the organization sustained and growing over the years. Not everyone has been able to do that. We're all sort of operating to some extent at the discretion of how progressive donors are feeling at any given time. I think that is a challenge. Have you found it to be different to raise money, substantially different when you're new, a startup, the shiny object, 
a new idea versus now, even though you're young, you're already known and it's more about growth and maintenance of an existing model? We had the opposite experience that a lot of other sort of orgs that came out of the wreckage of the 2016 cycle did. A lot of orgs raised a lot of money really quickly. Swing Left, Indivisible, those types of folks, they raised more money way more quickly than we did. And some of that, we were birthed out of like the the election of Donald Trump, but we never existed to stop Donald Trump or to like do anything in relation to him. We were doing something super different. And that meant in the really early years, people really liked what we were doing. People would say, oh, like we think this is so important with their words, but then they wouldn't with their money. That's okay. It was frustrating in the moment, but like in hindsight, it's okay. (laughs) I think now it has made the fundraising easier for us because we do know a lot of the folks already. We have like interact with them. Some of them have given us smaller amounts of money. So there's some trust already built up, but it's still hard. It's still really hard because expectations change. We were a three, four, five million dollar organization at the beginning of this coming in out of 2021. We'll probably be closer to 15-ish by the end of this year. And expectations change when you 3X your budget. And like that's okay. That like comes with the territory. The changed expectations come faster than the new infrastructure that's added as to the organization, if that makes sense. So like we're growing, we will meet those expectations, but there's a lag time between when you get the money, when it's committed, when it comes in the door, when you're actually able to get it out the door. In some ways we're unique here also because like our program is like staff and people intensive. We're more like a canvas operation than we are a like paid media program outfit, right? Like the money comes in, you know, when you work at like a large super PAC, you spend it on mail, TV, phones, digital, whatever, like it goes out really quickly. When the money comes in the door, we're like building infrastructure because like Canada recruitment, you know, requires some of those scaled efforts, but it also requires like one-on-one conversations and those one-on-one conversations have to happen from person to person. And so our model is a little bit different and a little bit more intensive and I think is a little bit foreign to a lot of donors on the left. We haven't like funded a lot of candidate recruitment efforts over the years. And, you know, largely that's because state parties and unions did it. And as state parties have been sort of starved for long-term cash and like Republicans have like just systematically like tried to pick apart unions like bit by bit there's a gap that's been needing to get filled. And I think educating folks on the need to do recruitment work has been a challenge. I think it's getting better, but you know, I think we still get questions like, why does it cost a lot of money to recruit people? And the answer is like, because people have to recruit people. (laughs) I've talked to a bunch of political donor advisors in the last while and sort of trying to take the temperature of what, they are interested in which varies quite a bit and what they're looking for both in sort of startups and in existing organizations what's your sense of how well they as a class understand an organization like you and what you'd like them to know that they don't know 
I think education has been a challenge for on our end. And I think it's because there are competing priorities, you know, like in the Trump era, it was about beating Trump. That was the number one priority. I had conversations with a number of donor advisors who were like, I'd love to give you money, but our number one priority is beating Trump. And like, this is great, but like, it's not our number one priority. So resources are finite. I have like X amount of money to work with. I'm giving X amount of money to beating Trump. That's fair. Although strengthening the whole team actually does contribute, if you ask me. I, I agree. I would always give the pitch. This is where I think someone like you who's been around for longer than I have might actually have a better idea of sort of like how it came to be this way. But like as a party, sometime after 2004, we really decided like – that we were going to be focused on the national stuff. Like that was like where our time, energy, attention was going to be at the expense of building state party infrastructure, at the expense of organizations that predated run for something like progressive majority. I think we're starting to see some pullback from that. Some donor collaboratives, like the way to wins of the world have like really like done a good job of educating donors about the importance of state-based work. There's been a like a rightful swing back to funding sort of like state-based infrastructure building type work, but we still do it through the lens of national elections. Even when people are doing that work, it is almost always through the lens of like the presidential election and the states that we're working in are almost always presidential battleground states or like Senate battleground states. And I think that has been to the detriment of the party or just like the left, even just generally, the Supreme Court law that overturned Roe v. Wade didn't come from a blue state. And, you know, we've allowed our infrastructure in red-ish and purple states, we've let it erode over the years. I do think we're going to see a swing back. I think it's going to happen slowly, and I don't think it's going to be massive. I think we're starting to see folks start to understand that like, if we're completely seeding the ground in places like Montana and Idaho and Mississippi and Alabama and Louisiana, and we don't have like the resources and infrastructure to push back on a lot of these really, really bad like bills, laws, candidates, et cetera, then what happens in those red states doesn't stay in red states. I think there's been an increased recognition of that, but I still think it's going to take time. I think that education takes time. I was around at the very and tail end of sort of like the reorientation and re-education of donors towards putting all of our money into battleground and swing states. That sort of like was my entrance into national politics, at least. You know, we did a really good job of educating them that like swing states were the thing that mattered the most. And I don't think the answer is swing states don't matter. I think swing states matter and what happens in other states also matters. That's the tension, you know, like I talk a lot about tension. I think that's a tension that we're going to have to navigate. Um, and I think we're closer to that, to like a sort of like good balance than we've been in a long time, but it's still not where it needs to be. At least in my opinion, we're still not where it needs to be. Previously, when I asked people how we match up with the Republican side on candidate recruitment, your core stuff, they have testified that the other side is more formidable, that more money goes in, that they are wired much more around the country. Are, is that still true? And what would it take to catch up? 
if yes, it's true. It's, it's true. And um, one thing that like we talk about a lot is that like Republicans are in year 40 of a 40 year plan. We're in year like six of a 40 year plan <laughs> because, you know, like Karl Rove, like understood the importance of school board races in the seventies. You know what I mean? Like they've been doing this for a long time. They've cared about it for a really long time. Then they will continue to care about it. What it'll take. I think it takes prioritization and resources and some of it should go to run for something, but not all of it should go to run for something. Donors and donor advisors have like a portfolio of things that they like, that they like focus on. Very few of them There are a few, and those folks should be applauded, but fewer than there should be have a real focus and sustained sort of like attention to recruitment work. Some of that gets to like the way we fund our work, which is like a whole other thing, what goes to C3 and C4 and all of that stuff. There is a robust bucket of pipeline work that like happens on the C3 side. The problem is it just... It is difficult to do nonpartisan recruitment work. It, it is not as effective because fundamentally it doesn't account for the conversations you actually have to have with people. We live in a partisan world. Yeah, it's just it's just hard to operate in politics without acknowledging that. And and certainly also if your true goals are success of one party, then you know, camouflaging it in a nonprofit. There's a lot of that going on on both sides, but it's probably just not optimal at all, is my guess. You'll get no argument from me. You got two founders, which is a real advantage over having one, I think, and if you guys can get along. And But how much of your collective time is in seeking funding, managing donors, and preparing reporting back to donors to make sure that uh, that they know what you're up to and that they are happy. I'll say two things. One, we're lucky because there's two of us. Most organizations do not have two people that can go out and do fundraising work. That means that we can cover double the ground. Some people respond better to Amanda. Some people respond differently to me. And she and I are actually very different. So it's actually, it's very complimentary. A vast majority of our time goes to fundraising. I always say that the sort of things that executive directors deal with, there's like, it's like three or four F's, which is um, like fundraising feelings and fuck ups. Like those are the things that you deal with when you're an executive director. I assume also like a CEO, you know, you're raising money, but you're raising money differently. But like fundamentally, I think it's generally the same, just like with leadership. Like those are the things that I spend the majority of my time dealing with. That's why hiring like really good people is important. And that's why sort of like the talent pipeline in the progressive space is extremely important and requires more resource investment than it definitely gets. And every organization handles it a little bit differently. Some organizations have like a president executive director structure. Some people have an ED and a deputy ED. But like the the gist is somebody's somebody is doing the fundraising and sort of the public facing parts of the organization. Someone's running the organization itself. Amanda and I are lucky in that we haven't necessarily had to do it that way because we just have different skills and we basically divide up the work between each other of being like co-EDs. And we have a really special and unique relationship that we've been able to build like over time 
I've seen a sort of like movement towards co-EDs and the progressive movement. And yeah, I've seen a bunch of that lately. I just, I'll be totally honest. And I know I've heard Amanda say this too. Like, it's not a thing I personally recommend to people. She and I got really lucky. We are extremely complimentary people and we get along as like humans super, super well. And we started the org together, which meant that we had years to build trust and a rapport and like get to know how each other worked and all of that stuff in a high stakes environment, but like a little bit of a lower stakes environment than a lot of orgs who are like, instead of hiring an ED, they want to hire two of them. It's really hard to force that relationship because those relationships are built on trust uh, and communication. It's really, really hard to force them together. For people who don't really know you, what is Run for Something and why is it important that you exist? Yeah, so Run for Something, our mission is to recruit and support young, diverse, progressive folks who are running for state and local office, usually for the first, second, or third time. It's important for us to exist because we identified a problem, which was that candidate recruitment was not happening at scale across the progressive space. That isn't to say that like there aren't great outfits in individual states doing candidate recruitment work. What it is to say is there wasn't enough of it happening. It wasn't happening in enough places. A lot of the recruitment work that happens in what I'll call sort of like the institutional left, which is like the state parties, caucuses, et cetera, um, doesn't have a lens towards diversity. If your job could be thought of as sort of the progressive side's candidate recruitment. Why place such a focus on the diversity part of it when there are great candidates of every race and identity? Why substantially put your energy into a subset of that? I think because there's a wild underrepresentation of young people, of people of color, of even women, in especially state and local offices. These are the places where we recruit for Congress. These are the places where we recruit for Senate. They're the places where we recruit for secretaries of state and lieutenant governors and governors and all of those races. It's partially about changing the pipeline. It's also about an acknowledgement that different types of people bring different perspectives to the legislative process. Um, or to sort of like the governing process. And the governing process for a long, long time has been run by people who look the same, who have the same sets of experiences. It's not surprising that it's been so difficult to get things moving around student loans when like a majority of the people who represent, who are like in Congress, don't have student loans. And maybe never did have student loans. I have $70,000 in student loan debt. I will be paying it off for most of the rest of my life. It's a huge problem. It like makes it more difficult to buy a house. It makes it more difficult to do like all the things that like people sort of like drag millennials and Gen Z folks for. I also think like childcare is also like a real thing here. There aren't enough women in Congress. There aren't enough working class people in Congress. There aren't enough working class women in Congress who have actually like experienced the challenges that you have when you have to make decisions between how am I going to take care of my kid or doing this other thing that I know I also need to do. 
without those types of perspectives, we lose the country. And what I mean by that is Republicans are not held accountable for what government does and doesn't do, because that's the one thing everybody knows about Republicans is they don't like government and they say it and they're explicit and and they sabotage it. Yeah. Government doesn't work. They get into office. They make sure government doesn't work. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Is it harder? Does it take more effort to recruit someone in the categories that you're most working on? Yeah. And it would to recruit a white male, for example? Yeah, it's harder. It's harder. It takes more money. It requires more effort. It requires more like energy and focus. Absolutely. And I think like, you know, there's just there's tons of academic research out there that demonstrates it. It's our own experience. And it's like what we exist to do. And so we're fine. Like, it's going to be harder. We know that it's baked into our model. And it's a part of the cost of doing business, to be honest, for us as an organization. You are kind of a great example of the class of 2017, the post-Trump political entrepreneurs that created organizations that have endured and look like they are likely to be important going forward. Who else in that era do you think has put together something that matters as much or that you look to as a peer um, or an example of how to do this? I think of folks like Sister District. um, They do really incredible work. And they're like really, really focused on like the work outcomes, making sure that like they're having an impact in their races. I think of folks like New American Leaders who predated the Trump era a little bit, but like really had like a moment in the Trump era and are doing really incredible work that like no one else is really thinking about, like immigrants and folks with immigrant backgrounds. These folks also didn't start in the Trump era, but like they had a resurgence in the Trump era, which is like the DLCC. Jessica Post, I've said this in a lot of places, I think somebody should build a statue to her somewhere because she turned a party committee that was completely irrelevant and had a lot of very significant and serious problems and made it something again. That kind of turnaround work is extremely difficult. So she deserves like all of the praise and plaudits that like anyone wants to give her. The folks over at Collective Pack do really good work. I think 2017 wasn't just also about like the new groups. I think there was also like just like a change in attitude among like a lot of existing groups. The Working Families Party is like had a real sort of like national moment. I would even say like the folks that, you know, like just Democrats for what they are trying to do, they do good work. Oh, yeah. I'd also include like Arena. A lot of folks compared us to Arena at the beginning. We never sort of really did the same thing, but people thought we did, which is fine. But I think the work they're doing around staff training and sort of like filling a void that existed in the progressive movement is really important. They don't completely fill like the void that the new organizing institute was in. They've like made contributions to that. The National Democratic Training Committee, I think, does really good work training people at scale. And then the last folks I would mention who we've worked with this cycle in earnest for the for a first time is Repower. Um, and they were, you know, they were formally well-stoned, but for all intents and purposes are a, a new organization. They've been doing really interesting work, too, to sort of like fill um, like the training space, especially for marginalized communities. Do you see any big gaps in the ecosystem that remain? And I guess I would say, 
if you do, do you have any advice for someone who might be interested in making an impact by building something in one of those gaps? I can't tell if this is because of me sort of just like being in charge of an organization now for six years-ish. There is a gap. It's going to be a really hard gap to fill. And I think a lot of organizations do different parts of this work. But I think the thing that I have been thinking about a lot over the last couple, probably last year, is that the work we do in politics is not sufficient to move the country where I think we need it to go. We do a decent job of it, but I think we need to get a lot better of doing culture work, like reaching people where they're actually like spending their leisure time. I think we have on the left huge advantages in that area, in the entertainment industry and probably in sports. And But there is a huge amount going on on the other side too in religious institutions, in rural institutions, in the talk radio world, in the right-wing media, like where we are culturally, we are disadvantaged in some aspects for sure. And then they're running way ahead of us. They are. And, and the left has problems with men, period. Like it's not just white men, it's all men. Like we have problems with men and political tactics, knocking on doors, like in during the election cycles, digital ads, TV ads, those aren't that those things are not sufficient to solve the scale of the problem that we actually have with men. It's a cultural problem. And well, if you had to put your finger on that problem with men, just between you and me, we're both male here. Wh what do you think it is? I don't think we do a great job of meeting people where they really are. I think we do a good job of meeting people where we wish they would be. And we don't acknowledge the chauvinism that's out there. It's not even about acknowledging problematic behavior or whatever. I think it's that we often don't communicate like human beings to human beings. Like we communicate with them the way that we wish they would communicate back to us. We don't communicate with them the way they communicate with each other. Could it be reasonable to say that we often get mad at them when they, when males communicate in a way that they do with each other. I mean, yeah, I think that's, I think that's true. And whether that has merit or not, I think is like a whole different set of conversations. So here's what I'm not saying. I'm not actually here to make an argument about like popularism or whatever. That's like not what I'm here to do. And I think that sort of whole line of argumentation has its own set of problems. I'm not talking about issues. What I'm really talking about is like fundamentally a lot of like people don't like us on the left. They feel like we well, some people don't. Yeah. Some subset of crucial people may not. And they feel like we they're judged and they are being for what it's worth. They are being judged. We're in the business of trying to move society forward to make change. And some people are not ready. And 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 different parts of the country and different people individually are at different points of that journey. There's a huge difference between someone who's been immersed in a change atmosphere around a bunch of hot button things than someone who for whom a lot of the terminology and ideology is foreign. Yeah. And what I'm not saying is like, people don't have a right to be angry. They don't have a right to feel the way they feel. I actually think they do. 
what I'm saying is like, it's actually incumbent on people like me. I'm a white man, like to collect my people. I'm not from a coast. I grew up in a rural suburb in Houston, Texas. I know people who are Trump supporters. I know people who are Republicans and don't like Trump. And I understand why they don't like Trump. I could have ended up that way. That was like a, that was a path in my life that like I didn't take, but I could have, and it would have been an easy one to take. We're not going to win all of those people back. Or if we ever had them, we're not going to win all of them or even a lot of them, but it is incumbent on men, especially like men on the left to start to try to figure out how we're going to win over the folks that we can and not do it at the expense of the other work that has to happen. Like, we need to invest in communities of color. We basically, outside of like the work that like Voto Latino, Latino Victory, Equis, and like a handful of other organizations are doing, we've put almost no money into Latino organizing. Is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't? No, I think we like hit a lot of stuff in that conversation. Well, I, I thought it was valuable and I'm kind, and I didn't really have the intention of necessarily going everywhere where we did. I think it was a valuable conversation for the space. And there are a lot of things that I admired about how you put it and what you've learned along the way. So I feel honored to have had that conversation with you. Ross, is there anything else you want to say? No, I think this was great. I also didn't intend for the conversation to go where it did, but you know, it did and I feel good about it. That was Ross. He is at runforsomething.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.